Well, uh, good morning, and uh, I just want to uh, welcome you all again to our church. And before we get into the sermon today, uh, we're taking a little time in our, in our service to honor somebody very, very special to us. And many of you know uh, Mrs. Melissa Anderson. And we uh, communicated a few weeks ago with you that uh, late last fall, Melissa had uh, shared with us that she saw her time as our director of children's ministry coming to, uh, to conclusion. And we very much appreciated the long uh, runway on that one and have been working to, um, uh, to make provision for that transition, which we will be sharing with you uh, in the coming weeks. But uh, today and next Sunday, uh, we want to honor uh, to honor Melissa. And so I'm going to just begin by giving you flowers that you can hold. You just smell those, okay? As I have some uh, very flowery words that I want to share uh, regarding Melissa's tenure. Now, many of you, perhaps most of you, know Melissa. Now, come over here so you're in the shot with me, okay? Because this is, this is about you here. It's all about him except for the next two minutes. <laughs> it's all about you. All right. Uh, Melissa has served as Director of Children's Ministry here at Bethel Church for 19 years. 19 years. You know, they talk about like years of dog life, how you know, they calculate what that means. 19 years in children's ministry is basically unheard of. I mean, that's a, that's a very, very long tenure. So we got working on, like, what does that mean? I have a few statistics, and these are somewhat estimates, but just to give you a sense of this. So 19 years, that would be 988 Sundays. If you would have stayed three more months, it would have been 1,000. I don't know if you thought about that, but you did. Okay. But it's close enough. We'll call it good. Uh, over 20 summer VBSs. Just that is worthy of high praise. Back in 05, she was part of the design of our, of our children's uh, ministry center, which we've enjoyed now for 15 years. Uh, she was very uh, instrumental in the establishing of children's ministry at our other church campuses and has continued to give uh, oversight and leadership to those ministries. We got estimating how many children has she, over these years, uh, had the opportunity to minister to. Now, when I say children, these are, many of these are obviously repeat, but if you think about like shepherding touches with, with uh, children, we estimate that it would be over 400,000 children that she would have uh, done. And that's just Sunday morning. So if you throw in a wanna uh, with that, we are well over half a million shepherding moments, and I'm sure you remember every single one of those, Melissa. <laughs> so, uh, a lot that we could say. Uh, we only have a few minutes here in the service. Um, but I would say that all of us who know and love Melissa, a few qualities that we have so much appreciated about her leadership. Uh, the first, obviously, is that she, um, she loves God, and her ministry flows out of a, an act of worship to God and what a difference that makes with leaders when they're serving, the pe serving God by serving the people. And we have very much had that sense from, from you over the years and we thank you so much. Uh, she 
totally loves the kids. How many times over the years I have seen the kids come in and you know, she's not one of these, she, she gets down on their level, you know, she looks them in the eye, she knows them by name. And uh, that, has, that sense has come across to children. They all love, uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Anderson, Miss Melissa. She also has loved the families of our church. Um, to recognize that when you minister to children, you're ministering to the children and through them to the families as well. And what a wonderful ministry you have had to the families of our congregation. And we say thank you to that. And, and the third thing that I would add is that Melissa has a tremendous graciousness about her. Uh, there is a softness about her. I think of Philippians uh, uh, 4 that says, let your gentleness be evident to all. And you have certainly ministered here with a kindness, a graciousness, and a gentleness that has been such a blessing to us over the years. Now, I want to make a, uh, take a moment and also acknowledge her husband, Jeff, who is here in the front row, because Jeff has been uh, tanto, uh, if you will, to Melissa and has served in remarkable ways as well. And Jeff, I'm going to ask you to stand right now for a moment. Can we acknowledge Jeff's ministry over these years? We say thank you for all that you've done, so much of it behind the scenes, uh, but we've seen it and we... We very much appreciate it. So uh, next Sunday, this is a Sunday we're kind of doing it here uh, from the platform, but next Sunday uh, in the afternoon starting at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a reception party for Melissa, and we invite any of our congregation to come, but especially families that have been touched by her ministry. Please come out and uh, have the opportunity to acknowledge and to say thank you uh, to her. So on behalf of the church, I, I just want to uh, present a, a gift to you, a special thank you. And uh, can we take a moment and acknowledge 19 years? to try to talk here. Uh, it has been a, I know this, what I'm about to say maybe sounds cliche, but it has been a real privilege and joy to serve here as the director of kids ministry. How God brought that all about is amazing. And uh, I would have never uh, known that I would be doing this for 19 years, but yet I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, we have the best families at Bethel Church, and I love each and every one of you, and uh, I will miss seeing those kids every Sunday in kids' ministry, but I hope that I still see them around the church and still receive a few hugs and fist bumps and all those things. Um, if you volunteer in kids' ministry, you have been more than a blessing that I can put into words to Jeff and I. We have uh, gained friendships through volunteering. We have made a lot of relationships with people, and we have the best volunteers in kids' ministry. So thank you for that. And 
I also want to acknowledge that it has been a pleasure to serve with such a rock star staff team. Um, I appreciate the support and the love that they have shown me over the years. And I will miss them. But I still, Jeff and I still plan to be here, still see all of you around, and, uh, and just be in the service from the beginning to the end <laughs> without wearing a pager or anything. But we love you and we're thankful for this opportunity that we have had for the last 19 years. All glory to God for his work through us and through the kids' ministry. Amen. Thank you. Well, that was sweet, and uh, if you know Melissa, that's uh, sweet's a good word to apply to her. And so we say thank you, and we'll be saying thank you again. A reminder again next Sunday, also an opportunity for you personally to uh, express your gratitude. All right, we're going to turn into our sermon time now and open God's Word. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 16. And uh, I'm going to ask you, as you do, if you've ever heard the term deconversion or uh, uh, deconstruction, particularly related to faith. These are somewhat new terms. Maybe the last five years or so, uh, we have had this bantered about. And these are terms that are used to describe somebody who once professed to be a Christian but now they have deconverted. They have turned away from that faith and they are now saying that they do not believe in Christianity anymore. And if you follow much of uh, kind of you know, uh, the, the, the Christian news, this is happening all too often right now and often the reason that it's noted is that we have very like high profile Christians that are people that claim to be Christian, that are now saying, I'm no longer a Christian. Often this is a celebrity-type person, at least in the Christian world, a well-known pastor or an author or a musician or the child of a celebrity Christian. And they'll oftentimes post on Instagram something like this. I never thought I would say this, but I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a Christian. Or... I'm being true to who I am, and now I want the world to know that I'm seeking spirituality apart from Christianity. Or something like that is the way that they, that they say it. Now, for us, we would look at somebody who denies the faith and says they're no longer a Christian and say that they are, uh, this, this would indicate that they were never saved in the first place. And uh, we would go back to Romans 8 and Romans 9 as a doctrinal basis for that. And you can go back and look at that as you would like. Or just read Hebrews, which warns against this. But this whole deconstruction and deconversion is hardly a new thing. Okay, uh, If you even look in the Bible, we have people that at one time appeared to be followers of Jesus or believers in the God of Israel in the Old Testament who no longer are. And we can think of New Testament people like Judas or Diotrephes or Alexander or even think about Satan himself. I mean, probably the most uh, well-known deconversion is what Satan did when he turned on God and turned away from God. 
And we see from this that people have been deconverting from the beginning. Satan just didn't have an Instagram account, at least none that we are, know of. So today I'm asking the question, and the text is going to kind of bring this to us, how do these deconversions happen? I mean, what takes place for somebody who claimed to be a follower of Jesus to now say, I'm not a follower of Jesus? How does somebody deny the true gospel? Because realize, most of these people that are, that are deconverting, they, they don't say, you know, I thought I was saved from the wrath of God by the death of Jesus in my place, but now I am seeking reconciliation with God in another way. That's not what they say. They don't say, I, uh, I, I think now I'm believing a false gospel and I'm gonna go after the false gospel. Most of them believe in their hearts that the new path that they're on is the right path, the more enlightened path, the path that makes them happier, the path that makes them feel better about themselves. And they often urge other people to follow the path that they are on. Think about what I've observed over the years. You know, I was a youth pastor for, for many years, and, and it's sadly been true even in our, in our church. We have kids that grow up in, the, in a Christian home, and then they go away to college, and then they go away to the university. And that humanities professor overwhelms their faith, or the party scene overwhelms their faith, and they come out of college, and they say, hey, mom and dad, I know that I used to say that I'm a Christian, but I'm not that anymore. I'm, I'm following a different path, a path that's better in my mind, a path that is happier. They've seen the light. They're on a new direction. But sadly, any direction apart from faith in Jesus is a direction that leads people to hell. That's the bottom line. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You pick a different path than Jesus, you can feel better about it. It can make you, you know, happier. It can seem more fulfilling. But it's only that for now. What about trillions of years from now? And this is the reality of the one gospel that saves and is why deconverting from that one gospel is such a, a, a terrible danger for us. And it was a danger when Paul wrote Romans. And so here we are now, uh, as I said last week, if, if our series in Romans was a flight, the flaps are out, the, the, the wheels are down, I mean, this, we're about to land this thing. And we've been in chapter 16, which, what a wonderful chapter. It's like a Christmas card. You know, there's all these greetings and names and these beloved people and, and holy kissing. And then very abruptly, Paul writes this in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. That is our text today. What does that mean? Well, like I said, this is, it's such a warm and cozy chapter, and then all of a sudden you have, bam! He comes out with this warning, so abrupt, there are some scholars that say, they're, they're like, I'm not sure this was actually in the original, because it's such a transition uh, that, that they, they wonder about that. Now, I, I, I'm very confident that it was, 
because Paul has very similar language in most of his letters, and so we shouldn't be surprised that uh, he would do this. It's almost like, you know, right at the end of Romans, he's like, oh yeah, one more thing I forgot. And he, bump bams that thing in there. I appeal to you, okay? I appeal to you. That's how he begins. Perhaps the ESV should have translated it a little stronger because the word, it, it really is uh, urging. I strongly urge you. We might even say, I warn you. This is not a side note. This is a wake-up call that Paul is issuing. And he does so because he sees a danger lurking for the Roman church and for these Roman Christians. What is the danger? I'm gonna use in this message language that Paul applies uh, in Acts 20 when he meets with the Ephesian elders. He calls certain people wolves, okay? Wolves among the sheep. Now, the sheep is a common metaphor for Christians, and Jesus is the good shepherd, and we have parables about the shepherd and the lost one out of the 99 and many other examples of this kind of picture. It's very pastoral. It's very caring. The shepherd loves the sheep. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But then you have these wolves, okay? And this text explains who they are, what they do, and how they do it so that we can be on our own lookout for this. And I'm gonna tell you right now, if, if, if there were dangers for the Roman church in the first century, you can multiply that by a factor of a 1,000 for the dangers that we have in our culture today, for, for truths and people like this to divide and to mislead God's people. And so Paul says here, these folks are most effective amongst who he calls in verse 18, the naive. Okay, that's his word, not mine. That's his word, the naive. Okay, so who are they? Let's talk about who these, uh, these people are. Paul here is describing two different kinds of of people, there's definitely overlap here. He says that some of the wolves, some of these divisive people, are theologically divisive. They are teaching what they say itself is contrary to the gospel and is divisive. And then you have people who are congregationally divisive, okay? They're not necessarily teaching something that's wrong, but everywhere they go, they create division. And I'm gonna start with that group. First of all here, look again at the text. Watch out for those who cause divisions. Divisions. A divisive wolf. This is somebody who is not necessarily teaching something that is blatantly wrong. It is somebody who is just good at creating cracks in relationships and in unity in a local congregation. For them, unity doesn't matter. This is, this is somebody... Uh, every molehill is a mountain to them. The smallest little thing, we're gonna go to war over this, right? Uh, you know, I, I don't like how the communion elements taste. We're going nuclear about it. Every molehill is a mountain to them. Every issue is the most important issue in the history of the church. Are you not concerned about this, brother? Do you realize how dangerous this is? These communion elements or whatever it is. I only say that because I'm not enjoying the taste of the, uh, the communion elements that we're <laughs> using currently because of COVID. Hang in there, uh, but I'm with you in that. 
and I'm ready to go to war about it. <laughs> These people create disunity by personality or for the sake of some cause that they are in. And typically the way this works is they draw a tribe of people around them who have sympathy for them by their personality or relationship or maybe the cause that they are, they are pushing. They, it's sometimes a new idea, it's a new direction, it's a new point of emphasis. The naive, this is what Paul calls them, are drawn into their influence. There's something new about it. There's something exciting about it. And at the center of it is a wolf. Now, you could read some of these passages like this and you think, you know what? I'll be able to spot that false teacher anytime. That wolf, I, I'll, they'll have fur and fangs and, and uh, I'll be able to spot them easy. You know, they just look, they, they look like it. Paul makes it very clear. They look the opposite of that. In fact, he's, he, he points out they're smooth talkers. They're attractive. This is somebody who has an appeal to them. The wolf never shows up and says, hi, I'm a wolf. Would you follow me? Never does that. Divisive people are always appealing type people. Otherwise, nobody's going to follow them. They have no influence. Again, Paul describes them in verse 18 as smooth talkers and flatterers. Think about like Absalom, for example, at the gate there in Jerusalem. Absalom, King David's uh, son, of whom it was said there was not a blemish on him. He was handsome, he had flowing hair, uh, probably Dutch. Uh, and <laughs> he, he's there, and everybody that came to the gate, he would, he would whisper to them, oh, if only I was in charge, you would have a hearing. But, you know, David, he's too busy for you. And he, he turned the hearts of the people away from David and to himself. And that is the problem. This wolf here always has an appealing kind of way about them and they spread poison, the poison of a divisive spirit. And it takes very discerning eyes to see them. They never look like this, ever. Here's what Paul warns the elders of the Ephesian church. This is Acts 20. He says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And that language there, the, listen, wolves don't care about sheep. Wolves don't care about unity. Wolves don't, they will sacrifice sheep, they will destroy, tear down for the sake of their cause. Harmony in the church, who gives a rip? Well, God gives a rip about unity in the church. Here's some verses about this. Here's Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and notice, one who sows discord among the brothers. Here's Titus 3.10. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with him or her. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And, And all of these are just reinforcing this same point that the unity of the flock and the health of the, of the sheep for the shepherd, the true shepherd, he cares deeply about this. But the wolf has to divide in order to conquer. Beware of these sorts of people. This reminds me, uh, as, as you know, I've got, I've got young daughters and, um, who are sitting right over here. And so, girls, you, you, you can amen here if you'd like, because daddy and daughters, we oftentimes are watching these nature documentaries because they love animals. And so we watch these documentaries, and the ones that I like involve uh, some animal eating another animal, honestly. And so I'll click on the, you know, uh, lions and the cheetahs, and they actually kind of get into this as well. And if you've ever watched these documentaries, you know that uh, they, they pretty much all go the same. Okay, so here's the flock of wildebeest, or the herd of wildebeest, and, and uh, you know, they look so innocent, they're drinking from the water, they're, you know, they're eating grass on the Serengeti or whatever, and, uh, and then you have the, all of a sudden the lion pride, okay? It's always the women, by the way, I should say the females, that are doing the hunting, the men kind of lay around and wait for them to get, the, to get that. And, and that is, I'm just noting that. I'm not affirming that in any way. But it is kind of funny to see that. So here come the lions or the cheetahs or whatever it is. And what do they do? They get as close as they can and then they rush the herd. And what happens? Mass chaos, right? There are wildebeest running off in every possible direction. And this is the way that they like it. They have to create chaos because by dividing them, they can catch the vulnerable, or maybe as Paul says, the naive, right? And you just know how this goes, because here, you know, here's the little, you know, the, the baby wildebeest is running, and you see the lion, and you're like, okay, bye-bye, right? <laughs> that little, that guy's toast. And, and even a, a mature wildebeest or water buffalo by themselves Bye-bye, right? You know what's going to happen. They divide, they catch the vulnerable, and they eat them. It's a strategy that works in many different contexts. And that's the way that it works in the church. If you've been in a local church for any amount of time, you know what I'm talking about, right? The kind of fissures and the kind of cracks that... Some people seem to create everywhere they go. By the way, a side note, I love the videos where it'll be a water buffalo and the lion has it by the neck and there's a couple of them chewing on them, but then the the herd kind of groups together and they come up all together and they chase the lions off. I also think that's a pretty good analogy that when we stick together, we can chase these people away. But that's not the point here, but I just add that. The point is that these divisive wolves prey on the vulnerable, the naive, the immature, and by creating division, rally people to themselves. That's the divisive wolf. Watch out for them. Watch out for them. The second is the doctrinally deviant. I'm gonna spend more time on this one. Let me, just, let me read the text again so you see what he's saying. To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have 
taught. Okay, so this is a little different than the first one. Okay, there are some people by personality, you put them in a small group, everybody ends up hating each other, right? That's just the way that they go. That's not what this is. This person is a teacher. This person is a, is a truth speaker, or they think it's true. These people divide by their persuasive and errant teaching. Now, sometimes these people are the same, okay? Oftentimes. But not necessarily. This is about doctrine. And I know full well when I say doctrine, there are some of you, your eyes roll back in your head and you go, oh, this is for the theologian types. No. All doctrine means is teaching. Okay? It's some claim to truth or this is something that should be important to you. This is something you should live for. In the world, we are awash in doctrine of all kinds all the time. So doctrine means teaching. And the teaching that Paul's talking about here is a kind of influencing of God's people away from the one gospel that saves and towards something other than that. Now, this is not Romans 14 kind of stuff. If you remember in Romans 14, we talked about Christian liberty issues. These are things that good people can, good Christians can disagree on, the sort of tertiary, secondary, thirdly level kind of things. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the kinds of things that make or break whether or not you're actually under the grace of God. Historic Christian truth and belief. That's what's at danger here. Now, an easy example of this would be the kind of people that come to your door with spiritual questions. And you suspect right away that they might be uh, Mormons or they might be Jehovah's Witnesses who are coming and if you spot that, you're like, whoop, you know, shields up. <laughs> because in your mind, I hope you understand that what they teach is not historic Christian faith. And so uh, the shields go up and, and the warning lights uh, go off Although, I have, as I understand it, the number one group that they draw people from are evangelical Christians. The naive evangelical Christians. That's why they come to your door and they ask leading questions that try to pull you into what they're trying to say. Now, personally, I hope that the danger for our church is not that you're going to become a Mormon. Or a, or a Jehovah's Witness. The danger here, because those are doctrines that relate to the, you know, the person and work of Jesus, the greater danger for us in this day, this is my opinion, is not so much that as it is the uh, subtle heresies. So, for example, are, are you familiar with the word, uh, the term worldview? Okay, worldview. What is a worldview? Worldview is the set of glasses through which you view the world. This is your belief structure. This is kind of your sense of right and wrong and true or false. And everybody has a worldview, okay? Everybody does. And there is a Christian worldview that we talk about often here. That's not the point of this, of this message. But when it comes to worldview, a worldview revolves around who or what is enthroned as primary in my heart. Primary in my, in my life. This is why for 24 years I've lived on, it's all about him. I just tried to 
you know, because when you, that's at the center of your worldview and the core of who you are, you get a lot of the other stuff right as well. A worldview revolves around who or what is enthroned in, in your heart. And so that's why I say, I, I think there's much less danger here of people turning to some kind of historic cult or heresy. What is a greater danger for us here is that over time that we become functionally secularized in the actual priorities of our life, the way that we live, what we think is important. And the reason I say that is the gravity of our culture is not towards live a life to the glory of Jesus, it's all about him. It is away from that. And the constant drip of media and the culture that we live in is away from a worldview that has transcendence, that believes in ultimate truth, that believes that Jesus is the savior of the world and that living to his glory is the one thing that we were made to do. You're never gonna hear that in media. You hear that in the church, at least a good church, but you're not gonna hear that in media. You're gonna hear the opposite of that all the time. And what are those things that, that in a secularized worldview are prioritized? Materialism. Power, especially political power. Sensuality. Money, sex, power. I mean, these have been forever. Mankind's alternate gods. But again, it's an approach to life where nothing is transcendent. Everything's subjective. It's all sort of existential truth. There's no miracles. There's nothing eternal. And the call is to live for yourself. Me, me, me. And when you buy into that worldview, even though maybe you wouldn't necessarily say it, but the functional priorities of your heart are that, the claims of the gospel and living for the glory of God and that Jesus is the greatest treasure and you know the Bible and all these things are going to seem not that interesting. And not actually, Monday through Saturday, the things that you are living your life for. When my, when my identity isn't grounded in who I am in Christ, the cultural values imperceptibly become the functional priorities of my life. I will give you one example. I was recently on a Zoom call with a whole bunch of national pastors some of them, their names you would know. And on this Zoom call, one pastor expressed his dismay at how many of his people seem to hold their political identity more closely than their spiritual identity. And he said that, and a bunch of the other pastors jumped on and going, I'm seeing that all the time, me too, I can't believe it, what's going on? One basically saying a kind of epidemic of political worship among evangelical Christians. Now, friends, can I ask the question, can politics be too important to a Christian? I would say anything can become too important and functionally in my heart become the main thing that I'm living for. So to ask a question on this point, if you could push a button and make America what you think it should be, 
or the church what it should be, which would you choose? And your answer to that question will indicate where your real citizenship is. And I just give that as one example. There are so many ways that false teaching, 